We all know the damage that fires are capable of. What we don't always understand is the cause, behavior, and what to do in the aftermath of a fire. Today, you'll understand these aspects just a little bit more. Welcome to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. We will give you tips on fire prevention, how to deal with insurance matters, and more. Now, here are your hosts, Donna and Mike. Hi, and welcome to Speaking of Fire. This is your host, Michael Slatman. I'm an expert fire investigator having over 45 years of experience in the fire investigation, both as police and private. And this is Donna Ingram. I have over 25 years in insurance claims and insurance fraud. Uh, And I want to say a special hello today to the Northern Colorado Fire Investigation Strike Team, Uh, there in Colorado and Wyoming, and also to the North Dakota chapter of the International Association of Arson Investigators. Thank you. Uh, We are honored to have today Dr. Andrew Armstrong, an internationally recognized expert authority in chemistry and fire debris analysis. Um, He is the owner of Armstrong Forensic Laboratories in Arlington, Texas, uh, which is a criminal justice laboratory and a private industry uh, lab. Dr. Armstrong was instrumental in the analysis of the samples from the Waco incident, the Brands Davidians. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Armstrong. Good afternoon. Yes, sir. Sir, how is it that uh, you became uh, involved in the uh, Waco matter? uh, Since you are a a private lab or a criminal justice lab, how did that work? We became involved in the Waco matter through a fire investigator from Houston. Uh, Due to unfortunate circumstances, the ATF and the FBI uh, were involved in the primary incident, and uh, the Texas Rangers took over the scene investigation, and they contacted experts here in Texas, both for on-site and uh, analytical chemistry. And so my laboratory got involved approximately three days, four days after the event, and we were on scene uh, the Saturday after the event, which occurred on a Monday, as I recall. Right, and and you, um, you, did you actually take the samples and then analyze them? Is that it? Yes, sir. We assisted in uh, the sample collection. Um, in addition to the personnel, field personnel that were there, uh, we had the assistance of several investigators from across the country, one from Los Angeles, one from the Philadelphia area, both of which had uh, canines, which were extremely useful in sample collection and identification of where to collect the samples. Uh, There was not a whole lot left of the structure. Right, and in fact, the matter is we have a a, a canine uh, accelerant detection canine handler uh, on the third section of the show, and and, uh, you find uh, dogs are, uh, are important, do you not? I found that dogs are an extremely, extremely useful tool, and the canine, properly applied, uh, is much more sensitive 
for the lab than the laboratories. Of course, the canine is in a different role. He is, or she, the dog, is uh, assigned to locate an ignitable liquid. The laboratory is assigned the task of the identification of that ignitable liquid. And those two tasks are exceedingly different, but both uh, very useful. And that's interesting. And, and that leads me to ask you, there's a myth out there that all evidence burns up in a fire. Talk to us about uh, that. That's, that is totally, absolutely incorrect. Fires are very destructive. But at the same time that they are destructive, they are producing evidence as to how it burned, what burned, what's left, uh, smoke patterns, char patterns. A lot of evidence is actually produced during the fire. And that's one of the things about fire that we know is true. That evidence is that, I love the way you put that, it's produced. Uh, we are able to detect things because of the way fire behaves. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, uh, the, we have a lot of education towards that with uh, educating fire investigators. But there, doctor, do you find that, uh, that it is also a talent uh, in that um, some people can observe uh, fire effects and others have more difficulty? In any industry, uh, education and training is extremely important. And uh, some people have the ability to see beyond the immediate char and look for patterns of information. Uh, other folks are not quite uh, attuned to that. And so, yes, there are vast differences between fire investigators and uh, as in any industry, they're just, people are different. How do you specifically assist in investigating fires? Well, I assist in the investigation. Uh, I try desperately not to go to the fire scenes. Um, in fact, the, the I can count on one hand the number of fire scenes I've been to, including the Branch Davidian loss. But uh, I function in the laboratory to assist the field investigator in the identification of what the fuels were, the ignitable liquids, uh, that sort of thing, how the fire started, points of ignition, is the field investigator's challenge, uh, but I can explain the chemistry of that ignition source. Uh, doctor, you've done, you've been a, an authority for a number of years. In fact, uh, uh, your bio indicates that uh, you have over 40,000 um, uh, analyses uh, in your background, uh, and you've testified both um, uh, nationally and internationally. Um, do you, do you find, uh, is it is it pretty well um, analyzed, uh, your debris analysis accepted by the courts? Uh, how do you do that? How do you do that, uh, 
that well, analysis. Well, the, the debris analysis is very well accepted by the courts. The 40,000 uh, cases is over 40 years, so it's not all that many. It's just uh, prolonged. How do you do a fire examination or a ignitable liquid evaluation of a fire sample? The first thing that happens is you log it into the system at the laboratory. The next thing is we put a small piece of charcoal, a charcoal strip, in the sample. And these tests that I'm describing are standardized uh, tests through the American Society of Testing Materials, ASTM. Uh, they have a forensic science committee and uh, write the standards. So the first thing is a charcoal strip. It functions like uh, baking soda in your icebox to absorb the smells. We then extract the strip uh, with a solvent and analyze it on a very specialized piece of equipment identified as a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. And from that data, we can identify the type of ignitable liquid, be it camp stove fuel, gasoline, diesel, common household products, or turpentine, or whatever. It's uh, actually rather straightforward once you understand the system. And I have been asked this specifically, can you tell what brand of a product. So, for example, the uh, lighter fluid, can you tell what brand it is? Uh, specifically, no, ma'am. Uh, you can compare it uh, between known samples, and some brands of charcoal starter fluids have different characteristics, but uh, it was, it's beyond the science at the current stage to identify the particular brand. You can identify the compounds and say the same compounds are in this brand as what I found in the fire stage in the fire debris, but I'm not able to say that is the only brand that would produce the information. Okay. Um, well, let me ask you this, Doug. Uh, if the fire investigator has a has a known sample, then uh, for comparison, let's say that he found it at the fire scene, you could you could definitely match that, right, to see if it was oh, exactly. Yes. So that, that's a different question because yes. we're running a comparison between two things, and yes, we can compare and give some reasonable precision as to how close they correlate with each other. If they don't correlate at all, we can definitely eliminate it and say it's not involved, uh, or we can say it's a possibility. And I asked that earlier because as we named this show as Fire CSI and the what people see on television with you know Miami CSI and all that is you know within 10 minutes they can walk in take a sample, walk in, and run it through and figure out it was bought at Walmart two states away. Yeah, plus they, <laughs> plus they get DNA back in, in 10 minutes. Right. So, so, yes. so, um, don't, we wish, don't we wish it was all that simple? If it was that <laughs> simple, 
we wouldn't have a uh, opportunity to assist. That's exactly right. Doctor, I don't know, you, you testified all over the country. Um, I, I found this, they call the CSI effect uh, for juries, where they, they, um, they're expecting a lot of, um, uh, like they want a, a, a hair with an aphelial on it to identify the, uh, the arsonist. Uh, do you run into uh, the CSI effect when you're uh, te- testifying, sir? Oh, yes, sir, routinely. And uh, the juries, the triers of fact, want something that they can hang their hat on that is absolutely positive definite. And sometimes we can provide absolutely positive definite, and other times uh, we provide a scenario of possibilities, and they choose which one is the most uh, viable due to their history and their experience. I want to talk a little bit about fire safety and get your opinion. What what type of fires around the home are easy to prevent in your eyes? The ones that are most easily preventable uh, are, one, kitchen fires in which uh, don't leave the hot grease on the stove and uh, go outside to have a hamburger. <laughs> uh, I regrettably, 40 years ago, I had that experience and uh, learned my lesson well. Uh, be careful of grease on the stoves. The second one is spontaneous combustion of clothes. People do not understand how hot a clothes dryer can get. It runs about 170, 180 degrees Fahrenheit, and if you interrupt the drying cycle of a load of towels, cotton towels in particular, and take them out and stack them up, they have enough heat on the inside to begin to scorch. And if they begin to scorch, they can continue to heat and catch on fire. Do not interrupt the drying cycle of your clothes dryer. Thank you. Interesting. Yes. And and doctor, you've you've also worked uh, other things where um, where people uh, pour fuel on things. What what why do they do that? How do they do that? <laughs> why do they do that? <laughs> I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. Okay, there was hardly was a terrible question. That's why you misunderstood it. Uh, have you not worked? Uh, have you not worked uh, things where people have been injured by um, by doing something um, uh, irresponsible, like pouring gasoline on things? Oh, huh. <laughs> routinely, regrettably. Uh, one of the things, other things you should never do, especially if you are uh, lighting a barbecue or lighting a campfire or something like that is never put an ignitable liquid, any ignitable liquid, back onto a hot or smoldering fire. You can use it to start it. Try not to use gasoline. That's a little dangerous. But you can use charcoal fluid to start your charcoal fire, but don't go back out and say, oh, it's not burning enough and squirt more on it. That will cause a problem. In particular, and, and, 
Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, in particular, if you are running a campfire or burning brush, uh, you think diesel is extremely safe, but it's not if you're pouring it onto a smoldering fire because the smoldering fire is hot enough to vaporize the diesel and make it explode like gasoline. Sounds difficult, but it's not, and it occurs all too frequently. And, Doctor, thank you for that. We're, uh, we're winding down here. We only have about a minute left. I want to make sure to say thank you for being uh, a a guest with us. We're yes. In our next cycle, uh, in our next, um, I'm sorry, segment, um, we're going to have um, someone that you know, Doctor uh, uh, Bob Toth from Iris uh, Investigations in Denver, and uh, he's going to be talking about uh, as seen on scene. He's going to be talking about technology and how technology assists us uh, in investigation of fires and also in the app- apprehension of uh, of arsonists. Uh, doctor, you um, you honor us by being here. Thank you very much. And oh, we're it's my go pleasure to uh, be with you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss a, a few facts. Thank you, sir. And uh, we'll go now to our break. Come come back. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hello, you're welcome back to Speaking of Fire. We have today with us an experienced expert fire investigator by the name of Robert 
otherwise known as Bob Toth from Iris Investigations in Denver, Colorado. He, is a thir- he has 31 years of experience in fire uh, department and fire investigations. He's a private investigator now with Iris Investigations, which he owns. He has taught internationally as a former uh, past uh, board member of the International Association of Arson Investigators. He's a certified fire investigator through that organization. And he also writes a column for the uh, called Fire and Arson Investigator, which is the journal of the International Association of Arson Investigators, and it's entitled as Seen on Scene. Bob, are you there? Yes, I am, Michael. Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Yeah, thank you, and I hope you had a great one and, and a happy new year. Uh, Donna and I are here to uh, to talk to you for a little bit about uh, about your career and some of the technology that uh, that is used by fire investigators in determining the origin and cause of fires. Uh, you've been sure. you've been a you've been in this investigations for a, a long time. How did you get into it? Bob? Uh, well, Merry Christmas to you as well, Don. I'm I'm sorry if I uh, failed to mention you in the beginning, but uh, <laughs> thanks. I uh, I was in the fire service in uh, Colorado. I uh, it's I was uh, first uh, level manager, lieutenant in charge of a uh, suppression crew, and uh, ten years into my career, I also had a five year old daughter, and I had a two year old daughter, and uh, a number of things happened. One, uh, I tell everyone this: it just wasn't as sexy running into the burning buildings anymore. And I began to get intrigued, not so much as how to put them out, as to where and how they uh, started. Uh, And as a coincidence or luck or divine providence would have it, uh, an opening came up to manage the fire investigations unit just about that same time. And in uh, 1992, I was placed in charge of our fire investigations unit and uh, been doing it ever since. Uh, what are some of the things that have surprised you the most about your career? Oh, that's a good question. Some of the things that, you know, uh, before I started uh, in fire investigations, uh, sitting in the firehouse, if someone would have come up and told me that we're going to put you in charge of investigations and in a few years you will start to meet some uh Tremendous people. You will travel the world uh, instructing in fire investigations, and you're going to meet some of the top people in this industry. Uh, quite frankly, here in Colorado, I probably would have said, what you've been smoking? Uh, I, wouldn't have, I would have never believed I would have had such uh, good fortune uh, to meet people as yourself and uh, my other friends I've developed over the years and literally around the world. And I was not going to make that joke. You made that joke. I was not going there. And I even said beforehand, we are not going there. Uh, Yeah, you should have said that, but uh, uh, it is what it is. So we're dealing with it. Yeah, the grass is greener in Colorado. (laughs) Yes, but it's not because of what you think. (laughs) Okay, okay. So, look, you're known now as the gadget guy. And the reason you're known as the gadget guy is because you, you write that column at the scene on scene. So right. uh, talk, talk to us about that because not everybody's familiar with that. Uh, scene on scene was an idea I had when I was on the board uh, trying to uh, come up with ideas that would be uh, uh, informational and entertaining uh, within the journal uh, just to, to create some more variety. 
And uh, what it uh, what it focuses on is some of the things that I have seen uh, on fire scenes that other investigators use or that I've used on the scenes that may typically and routinely, obviously, have not been marketed or sold or designed or invented for fire investigations. In fact, most of the columns I write are about products and processes that were developed for other industries that I've been able to exploit uh, to the benefit of uh, our fire scene investigations. I want to clarify something, too. That scene on scene is S-E-E-N on S-C-E-N-E. <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little play on words, but, uh, yeah, that, that's important. Well, that's very bright. I mean, it's very bright. You came up with this idea. However, I read your I, I read your last column, and I want to tell you that it takes actual talent to like build that a vest. It, 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 this column showed how you build this vest that you can carry all these things in, and you know, and 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 frankly, if I put that on, I wouldn't be able to walk. So well, you know, I mean. That's an interesting observation because at the end of every article, I encourage other investigators from around the world to send me their ideas. And uh, when I get those those ideas that uh, we can uh, get into the mix, so to speak, or get into the magazine, I certainly uh, recognize them at the beginning of the article. And that was one of those ideas that was uh, spurred on uh, by a previous article I had written uh, from an investigator back east. And um, I thought it was a good idea. I've seen similar applications using fishing vests and things like that. But, uh, yeah, that, I, I got a lot of feedback on that as well. That's good. So some of the things that you use, uh, uh, tell us about some, some of the uh, technical things that you would use at a fire scene. Uh, well, well, nowadays it, it's, uh, it's, all, it's, it's commonplace to see digital photography. Uh, back in the early 90s when I was uh, in the fire service, uh, I bought the first uh, scanner and digital camera for our investigations unit and was quickly summoned to the fire chief's office and was counseled for about an hour for for buying such wasteful equipment. Uh, but we know how, how that has changed our industry since then. But uh, it, long long after digital cameras uh, came into a uh, commonplace here in fire investigations, we're beginning to see some of the other advancements in that technology that help us uh, build a case and conduct our investigations. And uh, like you talked a little bit about uh, uh, it with, uh, with your previous guest about the CSI effect, uh, digital photography is no longer just taking a picture or taking hundreds of pictures. You can now do things like stitch them together or create a virtual reality. And somewhere down the road, you're going to have to present uh, those uh, photographs or that virtual reality to the trier of fact, like Dr. Armstrong spoke of, or to the judge. And uh, those are the type of, well, for lack of a better term, bells and whistles that, that a jury wants to see nowadays. And it really helps to uh, bring that scene uh, to the jury. And the, the enhancements and improvements in that technology uh, almost change daily. It's incredible. And there are some uh, scanners now, too, for measuring and, and things of that nature, are there not? Right, right. Well, one of the uh, uh, things that I've been able to uh, improve upon is looking at other industries, at their products and their processes, and, and uh, identifying how I could exploit them, if you will, for the fire investigations. And for years, there's been uh, 
uh, scanners for surveyors and things uh, of that nature. Accident reconstructionist law enforcement people use uh, 3D scanners or total stations to to map their uh, accident scenes. But um, uh, we are starting to exploit that technology now for uh, scanning fire scenes. The accuracy with 3D laser scanners now allow us to uh, completely uh, capture a fire scene, create a point cloud, but not only just create this digital point cloud, it also uh, takes digital photographs and um, figuratively drapes them over the point cloud. So what the end user then has is a virtual reality or a picture of the fire scene, but everything in that digital image uh, can be measured to accuracies of up to uh, two millimeters uh, of accuracy, which is uh, uh, incredible for fire scene investigations. And, and uh, companies like Ferro Technologies are uh, uh, leading the way in that in that type of uh, technology and uh, assisting law enforcement and fire investigators in the field. Right. I, I worked one up in uh, Bothell, uh, Washington, where uh, they used a scanner even on a on a a total loss where they were able to um, actually uh, map the fire scene uh, correctly. I think Donna has something for you. Yeah, I have. I, it's it's controversial, and depending on who you listen to, um, and I don't know what your position is or what you know, but I suspect you do. Uh, what about drones? Uh, you know, it's it's this. I refer to drones as this generation's digital cameras. Uh, one of the first. Uh, presentations I ever had the opportunity to do for the International at one of their annual training conferences was on digital photography. Uh, it was probably the most attended presentation that day, uh, hundreds of people in the room. Of course, back then, the, the argument was, uh, you know, they can be manipulated. You know, I have a cousin, uncle's friend who got thrown out of court because he brought in digital photographs and all that worry. Uh, I see similar concerns and worry and controversy with with uh, drones. Uh, you know, well, and I guess the the, the uh, more accurate term is unmanned aerial systems. Uh, drones have this military spying on you and and taking out the neighbor's dog with a missile if they gets on their nerves type of connotation. I refer to them as unmanned aerial systems. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think once the FAA. Uh, catches up to what we in the industry are doing and the regulations they're, they're uh, presenting uh, right now. I think all of that stuff will, wor- will work itself out here in the next few years and uh, uh, we'll be able to uh, exploit that technology on a more frequent basis. But interesting about the drones and, and our previous topic about the 3D laser scanners. Those 3D laser scanners are, are very unique in that when they create the point cloud, uh, and they stitch all of those uh, photographs and those point clouds together, you can virtually hover over a fire scene and look down from below as if you were in a drone as well. So it, uh, uh, there, there's more than one way to, uh, to get those uh, elevated views of a fire scene. Yeah, I think uh, we have we have one here, and you're right. FAA has got some real regulations on that. We had to get a, a certificate, etc. Okay, so how about um, somebody getting into fire investigations? Um, you're you're a longtime uh, expert, as I am. What would what kind of advice would you give uh, people for their careers here? Oh, I get I get that asked a lot, and there's always there's there's so many ways you can go with that that question. You know, I mean. 
uh, an analytical mindset, uh, insatiable appetite uh, for for data, or an insatiable curiosity. Uh, you know, those those are all pretty much uh, uh, easy easy responses. But the more I get that question, and the more I ponder it. Um, I, I I truly believe that the uh, most important character trait or virtue that one could have as an investigator is humility. Uh, To be able to uh, admit that you don't know it all, you can't know it all, and you need people, uh, other subject matter experts and and other uh, colleagues to to help you on these fire scenes and to realize that uh, you have uh, an incredible task in front of you, uh, be it a criminal fire investigation or be it a large loss uh, where you may have uh, interested parties or to identify that responsible party and to be able to uh, embrace that humility and make sure that the data you're analyzing is is true and accurate and you're conducting the right analysis I think I think that serves investigators uh, extremely I, well. I agree. I agree with you totally. I, I teach an expert witness class. Uh, Socrates said, "I am the smartest man in the world, for I know that I don't know anything." And uh, and then Einstein said, "The reason we do research is uh, because we don't know what we're looking for." So right. if we're objective and we admit we don't know everything, I think you are absolutely correct. Um, I was going to say, I wish I could just take the last minute and a half of what your response was and just repeat it for the next couple of minutes we have left with there, you. There's a, uh, there, there's a wonderful uh, book out there that talks about humility and America's lost virtue. And uh, it, it goes through the whole history of our country, speaking uh, back all the way to our founding fathers and how humility in a leader was viewed as an asset and and something to be uh, pursued, uh, and and you look at that same virtue today, and it's and quite sadly, it's not considered a virtue. It's considered a weakness, or you're spineless, or whatever the case may be. And it, it's a sad state of affairs. But if you if you uh, if you look at that virtue and you, and you look at that mindset, I think it serves us in investigations uh, very well. You're right. Um, now, Donna uh, threatened you uh, when we were off air. Uh, now you've got about three uh, with, with bringing up something you weren't prepared for. So bring it up. Yeah, well, which is two minutes. I was thinking it's New Year's Eve. Uh, this people like fireworks. Any right. any quick one minute suggestions about that? You know, just don't be so cavalier about you know tossing those things anywhere or using those things. I mean, there's, there's warning labels. There's common sense safety you can use. You know, Dr. Armstrong was talking about, you know, preventing uh, home fires. And, and I think, uh, sadly, it may be a cultural thing where we bec- we've become too cavalier about uh, what, uh, what we leave laying around the house or what we, we uh, 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 don't, don't take the proper safety precautions and things like that. Uh, um, and and I would say, you know, as, as, use common sense as uncommon as that may be. That's probably uh, uh, would be um, my uh, my suggestion. I mean, we we certainly wouldn't uh, uh, 
we wouldn't leave sharp knives or other dangerous weapons on on our nightstand uh, next to our bed that our children could get, but we leave lighters out all the time that can do probably more damage uh, because sometimes we just get too cavalier. That's exactly right. And and how devastating when you turn on the news and everybody's, you know, lost everything at Christmas and right at the new year. Not a way to start out the new year. No, or any time, really. But you're right. People are much more hypersensitive to the to the tragedy uh, during the holiday seasons and things like that. Um, Or even even throwing um, uh, lit cigarettes into ash i mean to uh leaves stacks of leaves and mulch they nobody we're we're not thinking sometimes sure and, sure and and um now so we'll have to go out here holiday season has a lot of fires and and when we uh get off this broadcast i'm sure that we're going to get a lot more um sorry to say uh and then after the new year also too um bob you we i really appreciate you pal um, I really think that uh, it would be great for you to uh, remain uh, as an integral part of the IAAI as long as you wish, and uh, don't retire in a couple of years because we want you uh, around. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got five grandchildren and another one on the way that has something to say about Grandpa retiring soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the colleges and things of that nature. So. <laughs> Well, thanks, Bob. Thanks so much. And uh, we're going to have to jump off here. Coming up next, we have a special guest actually here in the studio with us. And we're going to talk about arson canines. Yeah, uh, accelerant detection canines. So dogs that don't bite but take a bite out of crime. Come on back. (laughs) Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Fire Consulting International provides consulting and expert fire origin and cause investigations. Our experienced certified fire investigators have specialized skills to meet litigation requirements. We also provide peer review of reports for other investigative firms to assure they meet NFPA guidelines and ASTM standards. Educational classes and CEU classes are also provided. For professional investigations, contact Fire Consulting International at fcifire.com or call 913-262-5200. FireAnalysis.net offers cutting-edge, comprehensive programs unique to the insurance industry. Our vendor vetting assures regulatory compliance with the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, NFPA guidelines, and ASTM standards. We ensure that investigators' reports are in compliance with those standards. We also offer comprehensive programs to assure compliance with your company guidelines. Please contact FireAnalysis.net. That's FireAnalysis.net. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening. 
listening to Speaking of Fire with Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram. To call in to today's show, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to connect at speakingoffire.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hey, welcome back. This is Speaking of Fire. This is Mike Slatman. We are lucky enough to have with us today uh, Rusty Valentine. Rusty is a uh, has been with the fire service for, for 27 years and, and has also uh, been determining origin and cause for 23 of those. And he's a certified or is it certifiable uh, fire? Oh. Yeah, okay, I thought so. Um, uh, arson uh, or accelerant detection canine handler. He's been doing that for 14 years and uh, he's IAAI CFI, which is the International Association of Arson Investigators, a certified fire investigator and a Kansas chapter board of director. Um, Now, before we get into you, uh, I want to do one thing. Uh, I am very close to a a thing called provets.org, P-R-O-V-E-T-S.org. And that is an organization started by a, a, a dog handler uh, from Vietnam uh, in the Vietnam War. Uh, he was a sentry dog handler. And it's, uh, it's Larry and uh, Carol Abrams. And they started this to support uh, vets, uh, uh, veterans that, uh, and, to, and it's a 513C, so it's charitable, uh, educational foundation, and it pays for expenses for education and uh, and extra expenses that the GI Bill doesn't uh, uh, pay for. So I wanted to plug them. And since it was a, a dog handler too, Rusty, I didn't think you'd mind. No, I'm, I'm glad you did. Thank you. Now you've got uh, all this training here. Uh, in uh, how do you, how do you become a how do you become a a, 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 a Arson, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, an accelerant detection canine handler. Well, there, there's several programs throughout the country. I, I'm happy to be part of uh, a very good one, um, sponsored by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Um, I was, I applied for the program about 12 years ago and was accepted, and now I'm on my second partner. And it's been the best job I've ever done in my entire career. So I've been in the fire service 27 years. I started on the front lines fighting fire. I kind of got into the fire investigation world um, because I wanted to know my enemy. And then it just kind of flourished from there and ended up uh, being a canine handler in the fire investigation side. And you said your other, your your partner. So you consider your dog your partner, right? I do. This is my second partner, and you know, it's the. There's nothing more therapeutic in the world than a dog, and I get to take mine to work with me every day, and it gets to go home with me. It's, it's been wonderful. What's your dog's name? My dog's name is Webster. Webster. Okay, good. So now is Webster, and we'll get into this a little bit later. Is is it a reward? Is it a play reward or food reward? Uh, the program that I'm involved in is food reward. So. Um, they actually work every day and identify ignitable liquids every day to, to receive their, their daily allotment of food. They aren't shorted any food. In fact, um, you know, they're hand fed every day. I mean, who takes the time to hand feed their dog every day? But, but I do. On the, on the flip side of that is if you figure you do 40 times, you know, 40 to 50 uh, positive confirmation for ignitable liquids a day times 365 days a year, towards the end of their career, they've they've alerted to 
and identify positively identified over 100,000 times over their career. So they know what they're looking for. They do know what they're looking for. <laughs> and also, well, th- does that mean you're you're walking around with a with gasoline in your pocket? Or <laughs> well, I have I have a whole lot of things at my disposal. You know, um, the, the the cool thing about these dogs isn't that they can find ignitable liquids. I mean, you can you can train anything to do that. The cool thing is that they they can discern ignitable liquids in in an everyday mechanized world. Um, so so. I, I kind of say this sometimes. So if you have a, a, a dog that's searching, searching for uh, narcotics, those aren't supposed to be there. Um, so when they positively alert to those to those narcotics and you find those, then then we have an issue. The difference for us is is that we're searching for for something that occurs in the everyday mechanized world. You have gasoline in your cars, in your garage, and you use paint thinner every day. All those things. Um, so. These dogs don't replace our training experience. What these dogs do is they increase the probability that if an ignitable liquid exists in the scene, we're going to identify it and correctly collect it. Right, right. So, for example, so if they're in a garage and you've, because you're also a certified fire investigator, you've already asked somebody was what's in this garage absolutely okay absolutely i always kind of explain it to you this way if i'm working if i'm working a house fire and i'm trying to determine the origin and cause for that fire and i find gasoline in your garage i'm not necessarily going to be that upset about it or you know things like that but if i find gasoline in your bathtub then you and i are probably going to have a chat about that (laughs) right well how how does a dog actually how does he indicate to you that you've uh that you've got an alert or whatever well the the canines are are are, it's either there or it's not for them so as as the dog does his his patterns and his searches if he identifies an ignitable liquid he will actually sit down and then um point to the to the area highest concentration for that ignitable liquid i always tell everybody for the older audience all i am is a pez dispenser he does all the work so (laughs) well that's Okay, well that's great. And uh, and uh, and it does it actually actually nose points at at the area? He does. If you think of odor, so an ignitable liquid odor will flow like water. So if if you, I, I always tell everybody, if you if you pour five drops of gasoline on the top of a car, that odor is going to follow the troughs normally like like water would. So it's going to follow all of the drain patterns of of that. So what the dog is trained to do is when they is to search, and when they encounter that odor, then they are trained to go to the area of highest concentration it obviously doesn't do us any good for the dog to walk into our room and go yeah it's in here somewhere well i could have done that so these dogs are trained specifically to follow that odor which flows kind of in a cone and they will they will follow that odor until they find the area highest concentration at that point then they will give us a positive confirmation of that that's where we're trained to collect our samples again in the beginning like i said they're trained to increase the probability that if an ignitable liquid exists, we can identify it and properly collect that. So having said that, and for the listeners out there, so it's it's a flow of vapor and they're going to the most concentrated area is how accurate are they? They're, they're extremely accurate. Um, 
I had the the luxury of listening to Dr. Armstrong where where he said that um, that he truly believes that these canines are stronger than the labs. One caveat to that that I want to I want to make perfectly clear is we are uh, bound by NFPA 921, the 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 guide for fire and explosives investigation. And because we are searching for something in the everyday mechanized world, we're bound by the fact that once an ignitable liquid is identified by the canine, then we have to have laboratory confirmation to back that up. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm, I'm completely comfortable with that. In, in fact, a lot of times where canine handlers will get into trouble is if they try to stretch that, that boundary. There's no doubt in my mind that my canine, both of them, have been more sensitive than the laboratory. But there has to be a line in the sand somewhere, and that line in the sand says that they are a tool to identify it and us to collect it, and then we need to laboratory confirm that. Now, what I said in the beginning was that they aren't there to replace our training and experience. So the fire patterns and the, and the debris analysis on our own and all of the things that make us good fire investigators, we can't just leave those in the truck. The dog's not there to do our job for us. What the dog is is a tool. He's no different than a screwdriver. In FPA 921 gives us the latitude of where to deploy the dog, where we see fit, and how to utilize that canine in, in, our, in the spectrum of field fire investigation. We then use our training and experience to put the puzzle together. Now, they're very reliable, are they not? Uh, I imagine Webster is. is, is they are, they and, are. And um, do you keep percentages on that? I, You know, I do for the purpose of training. Mm-hmm. I, I, keep, I keep accurate count of all the times that I get positive confirmations and then laboratory analysis, but I keep that solely for my training purposes so I know where he's lacking. One other thing that you have to understand is is these dogs are taught and trained to to find ignitable liquids. Well, ignitable liquids are produced by the pyrolysis of materials. So the cool thing is that they can find that one drop of gasoline. The cool thing is that they can find that one drop of gasoline and identify it amongst everything else within a fire scene. So, our dogs are trained to find a classification of ignitable liquid and ignore the pyrolytic products that are produced by fire. Such as terpenes from wood. Such as terpenes. Now, now I have one more question. This is, and then Don, I know, wants to ask you another, but here's here's another one. Um, There's a certain amount of people that don't believe in dogs. They, they think that dogs are, are given cues by their handlers as to when to alert. I want you to address that because that specifically aggravates me. The dog is, is, is completely subjective, okay? So the, so the dog is set there to, to find ignitable liquids within that fire scene. And FBI 921 tells us that although you have positive confirmation by the, by the laboratory or a positive combination by the lab, you still need positive combination, confirmation from the laboratory. Right. I, my dog's a lab, so I say I get positive confirmation from the lab. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but again, we're searching for things that occur in the everyday mechanized world, and they don't replace our, our training and experience, and we have to be able to articulate all of the things necessary within the scientific method up to and including ignition sequence, first item ignited, things like that. So it's just one small piece. That's amazing. You're the, you are basically working 24-7 by having this this 
dog, aka tool dog, and it's always amazed me. And I I remember when they first were introduced into the system, and ATF and State Farm were all involved in that. And and kudos to you. We only have a couple minutes left. Is there any particular uh, benign type case that you want to uh, share or or funny story or? Well, I'll tell you one of the most difficult. Everybody that knows a Labrador Retriever knows that they love to eat, right? So they're they're constantly hunting. They're, they're, they love to eat. They'll eat anything that sits there in front of them. One of the toughest uh, fire scenes I ever had to work was a burned up grocery store. So, oh. yeah. <laughs> so, so can you imagine making, you know, running your dog through to find that one drop of gasoline in a you know, 30,000 square foot grocery store and um, you have to walk past the bacon and the pickles and the eggs. And, oh, and did they find something? Well, we found match light charcoal. Okay. Yeah. You know, there's, there's ignitable liquids <laughs> in, a, in a grocery store. So, um, which, you know, presents that challenge to us. Not only, just because we find it an ignitable liquid may not mean that it has anything to do with anything. Right. So that's that's where the training and the experience as a fire investor comes in to go, okay, now I have this evidence. What does this evidence mean? That's awesome. Great. Thanks great. so no. much for coming in, Rusty. All right. Now we got about 30 seconds. Can you tell me, uh, some fire investigators get uh, get bladder cancer. Does does the detection canines also, are they at risk uh, for, um, for these uh, things? No more than you and I. Um, Typically, the dogs that I've encountered are, are typically Labrador Retrievers, and Labrador Retrievers in and of themselves as a breed are, are known to, um, to fall susceptible to, to cancer. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I know that I take every uh, precaution I can, safety walkthroughs, all of those things that, that, um, that I can do that I won't put my dog in an environment that I'm not willing to go into with myself. So, Well, thank you for being here and thank you for your good work and continue and and thank you for being on the board of the Kansas chapter of the IAAI. Uh, Next week, we're going to have state and local arson teams with Jamie Novak, David Bridges, Wally Roberts, and Greg Carroll. Now, Jamie Novak is a well-known international member and uh, former board member and also a private investigator and a fire um, a department investigator. David Bridges is a, an attorney who used to be a CFI and still is, and yet he, now he's went over to being an attorney. Greg Carroll is the Missouri State Fire Marshal, so we're honored to have him. And Wally Roberts, a deputy, we're honored to have Wally Roberts, who's a deputy uh, investigator for, um, for the Kansas State Fire Marshal's office. So please join us again next week for Speaking of Fire. Everybody have a good, happy new year. Talk to you next year. Happy New Year. Thank you for tuning into Speaking of Fire. Please join your hosts, Mike Schlattman and Donna Ingram, for another edition of our program next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember to be careful this week and every week. <laughs>